You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. After a long wait, the midweek podcast returns. And welcome back. I'm Jamin. Nice to be with you. Sorry about the uh, break for a bit there. Not only was my schedule a little wonky for a few weeks, threw things off, uh, but uh, I was also wrapping up uh, a lot of recording and editing on uh, my latest audiobook, The Rise of the Water Kingdom. Contact me if you want a free code to download it on Audible. I'll get you with uh, that code. Jamin Bradley at me.com. You can email me there or you can just go to our webpage, 1208Greenwood, use a contact form and get in touch with me through that route. Happy to give you a free code to download that or any of my books. Um, I'll give you those as well. So if you enjoy listening to this podcast and having me lecture you for uh, extended amounts of time, well, audiobooks are a way for me to lecture you for an even longer extended amount of time. <laughs> so you can contact me for one of those free codes. Be happy to give that to you. Ah, but with that being said, uh, just as I'm kind of working through my schedule and trying to figure out uh, how much emphasis to put on the podcast, it would be very helpful to know if this is helping you. The easiest way to let me know that is just uh, if you're listening on iTunes, scroll to the bottom of this podcast list real quick of all our episodes and just hit one of the star buttons. Uh, That helps me see, okay, so people are listening. This is a good use of of my time. I know it's a good use for my time to be doing all this deep studying. It helps me in a lot of other ways, but as to if I need to be recording that studying, uh, knowing um, if it's helping you is, is helpful to me to know where to put my time. So with that being said, those are ways to ensure that the midweek podcast continues and we are going to jump in right now, getting into Genesis 24, story where we meet Rebecca and wrap up uh, much of Abraham's life and journey. It's a long chapter, um, but it's a lot of narrative. So mostly as we read through it, I'm just going to point out little things here and there to help you understand uh, the narrative a little better uh, as we move throughout it. So that being said, let's go. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. 
All right. Pause right there because we're already into weird stuff that needs some explanation. Uh, the first thing that uh, I'd like to point off uh, is that uh, we seem to be dealing with perhaps a, a different um, servant at this point. You know, I guess we, we can't say this for sure. But if you'll remember back to Genesis 15:2, we already know that Abraham had a servant whom seemed to be like the prized servant, if you will, uh, Eliezer of Damascus. Because back when Abraham had no son, he's kind of complaining uh, to God, and he's like, look, God... <laughs> I have no son. All of my heir, every my heir, everything that I own is going to go to uh, my servant Eliezer of Damascus. Right. So that was um, what the plan was in Genesis fifteen two. However, this servant is like a main character all throughout uh, Genesis twenty four. Actually, plays a very important role, and he remains unnamed the whole time. He seems to uh, be very, um, uh, what's, a, what's a good word? He just seems to be very caring for Abraham. It seems that they have a very good relationship, whoever this servant is. Um, he, but all we really know is that this servant is the oldest of Abraham's household uh, and has charge over Abraham's household. We, we don't really know that he is Eliezer. So whoever he is, seems like a good guy, seems that he and Abraham are fairly... Uh, comfortable with each other and that this servant um, cares about taking care of Abraham because he's about to do a lot of work for him throughout this chapter. Uh, and he's willing to make a promise too, a very strange promise if we're honest. What is this deal, right? Abraham's like, all right, listen up, my servant. I want you to put your hand under my thigh to make a promise. Now, this particular custom I remember learning about in college because it was not what I was expecting. Oftentimes throughout the Bible, you will come across um, different kinds of euphemisms uh, where the Bible doesn't want to be like crass or explicit about uh, body parts a lot of times. And so there's actually a lot of euphemisms throughout the Bible. And in our culture, sometimes we miss it. This one feels a little closer to something we might catch on to because a thigh seem under your thigh seems like a weird place to be putting your hand and it might cause us to wonder like is there something more going on here? Kind of. Uh, let me quote from Winham's commentary on Genesis, uh, the word biblical commentary. In fact, this entire episode is just based on Winham's work. So if you want to go deeper, um, Volume 2, Genesis 16 to 50, is good commentary to check out for yourself. But here's what Winham says. By putting his hand under Abraham's thigh, the servant was touching his genitals and thus giving the oath a special solemnity. In the ancient Orient, solemn oaths could be taken holding some sacred object in one's hand, as it is still customary to take an oath on the Bible before giving evidence in court. Since the Old Testament particularly associates God with life, and Abraham had been circumcised as a mark of the covenant, placing his hand under Abraham's thigh made an intimate association with some fundamental religious ideas. An oath by the seat of procreation is particularly apt in this instance when it concerns the finding of a wife for Isaac. Yes, so if you've already read that and thought, well, it's 
kind of weird. And in your mind, just, you know, was thinking him holding Abraham's thigh. Well, yes, it, it was more or less he was probably touching his genitals. There's nothing weird going on here from a sexual standpoint. It's all about the uh, symbolism as we just saw. You know, we're looking for the continuation of Abraham's line. We're dealing with the promise uh, of the covenant of circumcision. And we're dealing, too, with... Uh, uh, what was it that Winham also pointed out? He also pointed out, uh, you know, that uh, um, that God is a God of life. And, of course, where does part of life come from in humanity? Well, yes, from the genitals. So, with all that being said, I know it sounds weird. I know it sounds strange. Uh, but there is meant to be a lot of meaning on this particular oath right here. And, like, this is not any little oath either right i mean you don't just do this just to like yeah sure i'll go figure it out <laughs> for you no like this is a moment you're going to remember and is going to remind you to to hold yourself uh, to the south it's no little deal and abraham is making that clear and it continues to be made clear just how big of a deal this is uh as a story uh, continues on. In fact, Abraham's already kind of made it a bigger deal, right? He says uh, um, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. So, uh, what have we been learning as we've read throughout this? Well, if we know the Bible story well, we know that the Canaanites are um, going to be at war with Israel down the road, right? They are trying to move into, uh, well, God has promised Abraham, look, you're going to take the land of the Canaanites. I promised it to you, to your descendants. It will all be given over to you. And if you've been tracking with the Midweek Podcast, then you've seen the last few episodes that Abraham's super psyched about this. He's starting to gain a little bit of land, a little bit of traction in the areas that his descendants will take. So he's seeing that God, you know, God promised him his descendants would take this land, and now he's starting to catch glimpses of it. So uh, part of what Abraham wants to ensure, though, is, you know, that his descendants are, in fact, going to take this land. And if his son marries into the family of this land, well, you know, we can imagine where that would lead. You're not going to go and fight your new extended family and like, hey, uh, sorry, my wife, but I now must go and uh, um, take all of your family's land. That's part of uh, <laughs> what God has planned for me. But that being said, I also suspect that there's another reason that uh, he wants to keep things within uh, his family. And uh, this is something that you see throughout the Bible, and it's something that uh, people would call racist today. But I think you, I think when you call something like this racist, you misunderstand like the purpose of what the Bible is trying to communicate. So, uh, when you see interracial marriage talked about in the Bible or marrying someone of another nation or anything like that, you know, for a lot of people today, they look at what the Bible says about how you're not to do this, and they're just like, oh, so the Bible's just you know anti everyone else. Uh, Israel people can only be married to Israel people. They were just one clan, just focused on their own race. You have to understand, and I think if you've been listening to the podcast long enough, you've you've heard me say this plenty, but from a biblical perspective, uh, there is only one God, 
but there are other little G gods out there that God has made. And Deuteronomy 32 says that the little G gods are allotted to all the other nations, but Israel is God's nation. So you have to understand, like the most, the number one commandment, the top 10 commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before you. There is only one God. Worship him. So it is incredibly important from a, a just a Yahwistic society, those who follow the one true God, those who follow Yahweh, to not mess up that rule and chase after any other gods. Now, if you marry someone of a, another nation in the Old Testament, if you marry someone uh, outside of Israel, then what you've done is you've just married into another religion. You've married into the way that they go about life and the gods whom they worship, right? Solomon does this. Solomon suddenly uh, starts marrying women of all kinds of nations, and he practices polygamy to like a crazy extent, right? He's got like tons and tons of wives and concubines. Um, and because of that, he starts chasing after false gods. You see this throughout the Bible where marrying someone outside of Israel brings in these complicated religious scenarios where people start turning against like the number one in the top 10 commandments. Don't worship any other gods, only worship God. So the Bible is not like anti other races, anti um, uh, other ethnicities, anything like that. But it understands that to marry outside of one's nation is to well, is essentially to chase after the false gods or at least put yourself in a place where now your spouse is going to tempt you to follow their false gods like they did with Solomon or is going to lead the children that you have towards the false gods, uh, things, things like that. And it starts to um, lead all of Israel, you know, the more that they practice this, the more that they're going to uh, stop following the one true God whom they are to be faithful to. Now, the New Testament shows this in a new light, right? Uh, that essentially um, the the real deal on this topic in the New Testament is like um, you need to be focused on marrying Christians. You don't necessarily see the like uh, only one ethnicity thing going on, um, but you do see a only one religion thing going on. So Paul essentially keeps what has been uh, uh, the primary idea throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was to marry within its own nation to keep themselves chasing after the one true God. Now in the New Testament that all these other religions, uh, sorry, all these other ethnicities are turning to God and forsaking their little G-gods and now chasing after the one true God. Now that they're doing that, well, Paul understands like, okay, so let's Let's keep what the purpose is of, of marrying in within one nation, uh, which is to follow after God. Let's all together now, like, if you're going to get married, you marry a Christian um, because that is how you follow after the one God together. In fact, let's look at his words. You know, in Paul's words, a lot of times it's the implication that we're reading into it. So like 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So you know, right there, you have kind of like this understanding again. It's not like, oh, because they're uh, of a different ethnicity or anything like that. It's rather just like, 
look, they're not following after God. Uh, in today's society, we might say they're an atheist, but oftentimes in, in ancient society, it was like they're following after uh, another God, uh, another spiritual being. They're following after demons, things like that. And if the most important piece of our life is to chase after God, then we can't let uh, other things um, mess us up in that, especially one of the most important areas of our life, which would be marriage. Now, I know a lot of people today, you know, um, they they might get married to someone. They might be a Christian and they fall in love with someone who is not a Christian. And they really come across that question, you know, like, uh, what can I do about this? Uh, I'm kind of holding out hope that they might come around, things like that. Uh, and maybe we can get married now and they'll become a Christian later, things like that. Um, I was just actually listening to N.T. Wright on his podcast answer this question this weekend. Uh, and I think uh, I think he had a lot of good points in just saying, like, you have to understand, marriage in the first place is, is a lot hard. It's really hard sometimes just between Christian to Christian, <laughs> let alone you bring in uh, a lot of these other difficulties. And that could happen. It might happen. Um, but uh, there's also, I think if I remember right, N.T. Wright was just saying, like, you know, most of the time it, it doesn't really seem to go that route. And it just brings a lot of extra uh, pain and things like that. So all that being said, how did we get into this topic? We wanted to hit on three weird things when we started this. Uh, the first one wasn't that weird. We're just trying to figure out who is this servant. Is he Eliza of Damascus or a different one? Whatever the case may be, he's a good guy who seems to uh, care for Abraham. Second thing that we pointed out um, was that he seems to be making a vow by Abraham's genitals. Uh, for symbolic reasons there. And then the third thing that we just got into, why does Abraham want uh, his his son to marry into his own family? Well, I just gave a very extended response as to partially why that might be. All that being said, though, here's two more things that you could point out. Number one, Abraham wants him to marry, uh, wants his son to marry into like, his own family in a way that was probably considered a bit sketchy. So we've already noted that like Abraham and Sarah are like half brother, half sister, right? But they're married to each other. Um, and that's, that's sketchy from a, actually from an old Testament perspective, once the law gets put in place, it's the law is going to say like this kind of relationship is, is not allowed. This isn't okay. So we see God working with Abraham in his own culture and his own time, despite the fact that, we're later going to see like, oh, obviously, you know, you shouldn't marry your half-brother, half-sister. Um, there is a continuation here of the fact that Abraham's now sending his uh, servant to go find someone genetically related to him. So um, we should point out right now that that's a little weird. It's a little strange um, that he's going back to his own family to find someone in his family to to marry his son. So yeah, well, let's point that out. But then the other thing let's point out um, is the fact that uh, Abraham was called out of his original family to go follow Yahweh, to go follow God. He wasn't following him before, which means that there's a possibility that his family that he's left behind was worshiping other gods and still is worshiping other gods that they may not have turned to Yahweh. So to some extent, everything that I just said about trying to find someone in your own 
um, in in Christianity to marry. You know, for his time trying to find someone who's following Yahweh to to marry, uh, it may not necessarily be the case by going back to the family that you were a part of that was probably worshiping other gods beforehand. May not be the case that going back to them is going to secure that they are not. Um, that they are not going to be worshiping false gods. Now, we'll, I think we'll get a taste that this story is going to go a better direction than that as we continue to read it. Uh, but yeah, I'll just, I'll just point those those two things out, which again reminds us of the other thing, right? Uh, don't marry someone in the land of Canaan is part of Abraham's issue because if you marry someone in the land of Canaan, uh, well, we're taking their land eventually, and that's going to make things really messy. So that at least continues to be a, a part of the reason as to why it's to be someone in his family. Okay, that was a lot to say about just the intro of this. So let's, uh, yeah, let's uh, continue on in a moment. So the servants made this promise, and the servant said to him, Perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must take, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. All right, now you might be wondering here, like, what's the big deal? Why is Abraham not supposed to take Isaac to this land? On top of that, where is Isaac? Shouldn't Isaac go get his own wife? You know, like, why is his servant going to do it? I don't know where Isaac is, to be honest. I, I, I don't really have an answer to that necessarily. But um, I think uh, there, there kind of is this important question. Why is he not supposed to go back there? Uh, why is Abraham like so intense that his son is not to go back there? And I think the answer comes back to the promises again. I mean, keep in mind how, how Abraham's whole story started. God told him to leave his family, to leave his land and go to the land that I will show you. Uh, so for starters, part of Abraham's entire like beginning to all the promises that were given to him was for him to leave where he once was. And all the promises that are ahead of Abraham are going to be in this new land where he's currently getting closer to residing and taking some of the land that's there. So if his son 
is going to continue to live in the promise that God has promised him to take this land. And if his son is going to not return to the comforts of his original uh, extended family and where Abraham once left, then by no means in Abraham's mind should like his son even be tempted to that. You know, like don't send... Don't send his son back to Mesopotamia where he once lived. If he goes there, what if he stays there? What if the family that, uh, uh, what if uh, the family there is like, yeah, we'll let you marry our our daughter, and you just got to stay with us. Uh, you know, like, what if that's all going through like Abraham's head is possibilities of what might happen? Then Abraham would lose everything. All of this this covenant, all of this promise to to stay here and take this land all the developments that have happened over the course of his life would just suddenly be gone or thrown away in a moment or god would have to find a new way to go about uh, uh, the covenant things like that so in abraham's mind i think like you know i agree with winham that some extent like this is all surging through him he cannot go back he cannot put the covenant in danger uh do not go back to where Abraham was once told to leave. So that's uh, part of the reason that I think Abraham's so intense on this. Uh, verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at time at the time of evening the time when women go out to draw water. Okay, just to pause really quick, uh, Abraham's servant is going to look super wealthy, okay? So if you're going to go to someone's land and then just ask to find a wife there, <laughs> uh, you probably want to be impressive, right? You probably just don't want like a, a poor beggar walking off the street be like, hey, uh, I would like to marry your wife. No, you want to impress them. You want them to think that, You've got something to offer, especially in this time where uh, it's not always about love or love at first sight or princes, princess, that kind of thing. Instead, in this case, it's a little bit of a business transaction that's being done. Um, Abraham sends his servant, and his servant is not just like a servant showing up. His servant's been decked out. He's going with 10 camels, camels at this time like... That was a sign of wealth. Uh, camels were uh, rare. It wasn't just something that you were walking around with. And he's taking choice gifts with him. So, like, he's showing up in a limousine, if you will, <laughs> with a bunch of riches in the back seat to, to kind of pour out upon people. He's going to impress them so that he can bring someone back. Because you don't just send your daughter away with Joe Schmo, who just showed up and said, I'd like to marry her. Okay, see our daughter later. Go to I. Things like that, you know. Okay, so uh, he goes. the servant goes back to Abraham's uh, original land where he used to live, where he grew up, and then uh, tries to call out uh, some of his family. He's looking for Abraham's original uh, family, hoping to find someone uh, that might be related Maybe, if he's lucky enough to pull that off. Actually, yeah, let's point that out. Uh, Abraham never told his servant that this person had to be re related to him. There is this underlying assumption in the way that things go down throughout Genesis 24 that that would be uh, the best um, 
possible hope Abraham would have had and that the servant would have had. But um, the only expectation is that it's someone from the land uh, that he grew up in. Um, but yeah, we're about to, to find that person in just a moment. Custom was that the women would go out to draw water in the evening. And this servant uh, seems to be pretty tired. His camels are knelt down by the well. And uh, rather than just pull some water out himself, he's waiting for these women to show up and see if, the, if they'll be willing to help him. So verse 12, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. All right. You know, we, we've heard prayers even in, in current times, right, where someone's like, man, I just prayed, like, God, would you have someone do this and then do this? And would that just be a sign of, of something? You know, a lot of times those prayers sound a little crazy. You're like, oh, well, was it just coincidence or did God set that up? What are we supposed to do with this? Um, but in this particular story, we see an ancient uh, tale just like that, right, where this servant is trying to follow Yahweh, trying to follow God. He's like, Abraham told me that you would send an angel before me. Um, in fact, Abraham said that he would send uh, his angel before him. So this may go back to that kind of uh, Jesus angel that we've, we've talked about, uh, the angel of the Lord, since it's his angel, uh, not just an angel. Uh, but um, the servants expecting God to show up. Abraham said he that God would send his angel before me. Now here I am praying, and God, I want to ask you for something very specific. I, I want to say when the woman shows up and, and I ask them for a drink, would she actually go on from there and say, drink, and I will water your camels? And, and God, if if a woman does that, not only offers me a drink when I ask for a drink, but offers to water the camels as well, give the camels water, then would that one be the one whom you've appointed to Isaac? Now, this is this is interesting because, uh, you know, you, you see him hoping that uh, uh, in the way that the story plays out, that he will see an appointed person, see some approval from God as to the fact that he's chosen the right right woman for Isaac. You see all that. But you also see something else interesting. <laughs> it's I, this I'm not I, I don't want to use the word soulmates. Uh but you do see in this story in a time where marriage can be arranged, where marriage can be bought, you know, like uh here's a, a dowry, here's some things that I will give to your family if you allow my son to marry your daughter. In this kind of culture, in this kind of land, at the same time, you have God appointing two people to get married together, right? Isaac and who will end up being Rebecca in this story are appointed together by God, even though it's kind of a through the system of arranged marriage. So this is not me saying that soulmates is necessarily a thing or that 
um, every marriage that comes together is appointed. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually think when it comes to marriage, like whether or not you'd have this stamp of like appointedness on it, God expects you to be faithful to the person that you made those vows to a hundred percent. Like this is, you know, you just hear these stories. I'm, I'm going on a rabbit trail. You hear these stories of people today who are like, oh, I think I married the wrong person or, uh, oh, I, I think I was supposed to marry this person over here. Or these really annoying horror stories that I hear of people who are like, oh, I just, I, I'm married, but I'm falling in love with this person. And I feel like God's telling me I was supposed to marry this person or that it's okay to leave my wife to marry this person. Uh, th that's bull crap. Okay. So as far as the uh, biblical understanding of marriage goes for uh, the way that I read it time and time again, is whoever you get married to, this is the person that you are expected to hold your vows to, whether you have any kind of like spiritual understanding later or anything like that. God is not going to find someone else for you later and be like, mm, you need to leave your spouse and marry this person instead. I've brought you together. No, that's that's satanic. Okay. That's a that's a temptation right there. So whoever you are married to, whether or not there is even this like divine appointment thing in the background, God expects you, uh, now that you're married to them, to uphold your vow, uh, to stay married to them and be faithful to them and love them. End of story. So do not get caught up on this, oh, I just don't know if there's a soulmate thing or anything like that. No, who you're married to is who you stay married to. And God expected that of, of people in the Old Testament. And these people lived in an arranged marriage kind of culture where you couldn't always tell that there was an appointing like there is here with uh, Isaac and Rebecca. You wouldn't always get that. And God still expected them to live up to their vows to each other. Okay, that's part of what it means to be in a godly marriage uh, and to be chasing after God with your marriage. So that regardless of difficult times, regardless of of any like spiritual um, feeling towards the other person, like you made the vow anyways. So stay faithful to them and love them. Okay, that's for free. You can have that one for free. Where are we at? Where are we at? Let's get back into um, the verses. So yeah, he's hoping that um, the scenario that he's just prayed God, you're sending your angel. God, here's a scenario I would like to be carried out in order to um, see that you've appointed these people. Um, so he's now just prayed this prayer. God, may it happen. So let's pick up in verse 15, uh, where it says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Okay, did you catch that right there? This is the scenario that the servant just prayed for. God, would I know that the woman that I ask for a drink, would you just show me that they're the right person by having them decide to, to 
give my camels water too. It just happened. So he's probably freaking out on the inside. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So he's probably freaking out, but he's also like, okay, all right, this is happening right now, just as I prayed. And now he's going through what we all go through, like, God, is, is this just coincidence? Or are you you're actually fulfilling what I was asking for? But he may not have to think necessarily that this is like coincidence, because this is probably actually a lot more work than it sounds, right? For us, you know, like, I've got to feed two cats water at home. I, I stick the water bowl under underneath the faucet, turn it on. I'm done in like five seconds, right? But and just in the way that we saw, first off, this is 10 camels. Camels are probably could drink quite a bit of water, right? And uh, on top of that, it says that uh, she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. So like, she's kind of like, almost like going to the well, bringing all the water out, pouring it out, going, running again to the well. So she's, she's not just like doing a kindness that necessarily everyone would be like, ah, let me take care of your camels. This is probably actually quite a bit of work. Uh, so it shouldn't just feel like coincidence, like anyone would do this. I think if we were to be there in the ancient culture, we would be like, oh, wow, she is taking care of 10 camels worth of drawing water out of these wells. What a nice lady, right? So that being said, uh, let's continue the story in just a moment. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I should clarify that, you know, in today's culture, is there somewhere we can go spend the night? That's not what he's saying. He's just looking for a place to to stay with all this uh, stuff that he's brought in these camels and all that. Okay, so not not what it sounds like. Uh, and he said, uh, where was I? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. All right, family tree, let's, let's just stop really quick and see the relationship. Because like I said, this might have been weird even in like Old Testament times. The the Old Testament law is going to say, don't marry into your family. And that's essentially what's going on here. So who is she in relation to Isaac? Um, based on what we read so long ago in Genesis, uh, man, I get a headache just trying to follow this. So let me read from Winham. She simply says she is the daughter of Bethuel, who was one of the sons of Nahor and Milcah. Nahor was Abraham's brother. 
and Milcah was the daughter of his other brother, Haran. Okay, right. So uh, Abraham's brother married his niece. So an uncle and a niece get married. I know that that right there, you know, even the Bible would say this is wrong. Um, but in ancient times, this actually would have been looked at as a, uh, a like a social justice thing to do. I know that sounds weird, but essentially like this little girl was about to just kind of get lost in society. Her father had passed away um, and uh, she would just kind of be you know, like she wouldn't have anyone to take care of her or anything like that. And so her uncle took it upon himself to marry his niece, which I know, again, this is messed up. But at the same time, this was kind of like an ancient way of uh, doing social justice. Uh, you'll see later throughout the Bible that if your brother passes away, you are supposed to marry his wife. Why? Why would uh, that even happen? Well, it's because his wife... Uh, in their culture and their time, she's a woman and now she's uh, got uh, nowhere to turn, uh, not uh, anyone to take care of her because she would need this at this time, right? Um, now she's becoming an outcast. Who knows what's going to happen to her? Maybe she'll have to turn to prostitution just to make a living, things like this. So as weird as it sounds that you would marry someone in your family to take care of them, like, you know, that sounds gross to us but in a strange way in ancient times it was sort of a part of social justice like we take care of our family we don't just let them fall off the face of the planet when someone who's taking care of them passes away to them it was kind of like an honorable thing okay now i have to take care of my brother's wife or in this case uh i have to take care of my niece as strange as that sounds, like, you know, for us today, we'd be like, why don't you just adopt your niece and take care of them? Well, it's hard to impose our society thousands of years later on their society. Um, I guess my point is, like, we know today, like, God isn't cool with this and this isn't the way things should go down. It's just one husband, one wife together, things like that, right? We know that. Uh, but God doesn't just download all of... Um, the way that we should live into any culture. He often works with us over time. And uh, in this particular, in, in cases like this, where this guy has married his niece, that was partially done as an act of social justice. I'm going to take care of my brother's family now that he's passed away. No, it sounds weird. We wouldn't consider that social justice. But for them, to some extent, it was kind of like that. In fact, you know, I'm just going to read. Okay, so Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, like this is the way that is phrased. Like for us, we're thinking if a brother were to marry his brother's wife after um, he passed away, we would be like, oh, that's, that's so messed up. But for them, it was about taking care of the wife and was like a big, uh, like, it was looked down upon that you wouldn't take care of of your brother's family and let his legacy live on this way. So here's what it would read. And so listen to the way that the Bible would phrase this. Even though today we think it's weird, this is how the Bible would phrase it. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And the first son, whom she bears, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, sorry, to the name of his dead brother, and his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and put his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. So, like, that's a huge, like, moral slap in the face right there. Like, shame on you, that kind of thing. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Would we agree with this today? No. But in their thinking, this was a way that you took care of each other. Okay. How do we get stuck on that? Man, you just keep, you keep derailing me, everyone. I said, talking to myself. Let's come back in just a moment. Okay, so we got into all that stuff because we were trying to understand, like, how is Rebecca's parents an uncle and a niece? You know, things like that. We've now sorted that out. Let's continue. She said to him, to the servant, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So, don't you see right here again the servant? He's like rejoicing. Wow! I'm a servant of Abraham whom I've heard the stories and I've seen what God has done and how God's blessed him. And now I get to be a part of this story. Uh, God is being faithful to leading me just as he's led Abraham, just as uh, God's angel has led Abraham. So God's angel has been apparently leading me throughout this as I continue to watch and be amazed. Verse 29, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. Now, if you know Laban, he's going to show up later, and he's a greedy, deceiving, swindler kind of guy. Did you just notice the Bible's already setting you up to pay attention to that, right? Laban ran out toward the man to the spring and uh, 
as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. So like he's already thinking money and wealth because he's he's seen that uh, instantly. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll meet this guy. So he runs out, he meets him, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Now, I, I will say this really quick. This is where I do get a little intrigued. I mentioned earlier that, like, that Isaac shouldn't marry into another, uh, into the land of the Canaanites because then he might follow after the false gods, things like that. But then I also mentioned, yeah, you know, if he does go to find a wife from where he grew up, well, they weren't following Yahweh before. Abraham was called away from that family to follow Yahweh. But here's what's interesting. Laban just said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. And that's caps lock Lord, which means Yahweh, right? Come in, O blessed of Yahweh. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So I'm, I'm interested here as to how Yahweh gets intro, in, uh, interjected into Laban's voice, you know? Uh, has something changed? And now his family, uh, Abraham's family, uh, has like heard of Yahweh, and they've heard of what they've done to his son Abraham, and now they've changed their life. Now they're following Yahweh too. Is that going on? Or did... Uh, somehow, you know, Laban just heard about Yahweh's name being thrown around, and so he's interjected him. Or maybe he just knows, like, ah, yes, Abraham left us to go follow Yahweh. So if you're Abraham's servant, you must be uh, someone who's following Yahweh. Maybe that's the most sense to make of it, maybe right there. Um, but whatever the case might be, it's just interesting that you see, uh, you know, the name of Yahweh coming out of Laban's voice. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just pointing that out there. There, There's also the possibility that it's just like a writing thing, you know? Uh, maybe they just, uh, the Bible's looking to use Yahweh's name here, and they're writing it in grammatically in that way, even though they're not necessarily um, wanting you to think in deeper? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. I didn't read this in a commentary or anything. Okay, so moving on. Um, so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. Okay. Try and decide if I want to read this all to you, because here's the deal. Uh, from this from this point on, Abraham's servant is literally going to repeat everything that's happened. It's part of what makes this chapter so long. You see when the Bible does that, where like <laughs> the Bible tells a narrative, and then for some reason it feels funny sometimes, one of the characters in the narrative then tells the entire narrative <laughs> that you just read, uh, rather than just expect that you knew it. But, okay, so I'll go ahead and read it, but I don't want to call everything out. Here's what I want you to realize while I'm reading it, okay? So far, the servant has been a little nervous about the way that things are going to go down. He's been questioning, and he's been surprised, I think, at the way that things are going to go down, right? He's talking to Abraham. Abraham's like, go, I want you to go out there. And he's like, okay. 
but what if they don't want to come back with me? Well, okay, then you'll be released from this promise that you're making to me if they don't want to come back. So the servant's like, you know, nervous that this isn't going to work. He gets there and then he prays a prayer. And now he's like wondering, like, is God actually following through with this prayer? Because what I prayed is happening. Uh, is his angel actually here guiding the way? Is, is all of this going the way that it needs to go? So on and so forth, right? So to some extent, this is all a huge uh, experience for the servant. He's watching God really help and guide the situation. Now I'm going to read the way that the servant says back everything that's just happened. And you're going to realize, I think in the language, if you pay really close attention, you especially realize that if you did a close word study like uh, Winham does, but I'm not going to stop on all that. But he sounds more secure. He's rephrasing his story in a secure way. He's not stopping to be like, I was wondering, but rather like, you ever met someone who's just amped up on what God has done and the testimony is just like overflowing out of them and like there's no stopping their testimony. They don't stop to say like, I was really scared. Instead, they're just like boldly, look what God has done. Okay, that's that's what the servant sounds like now. So let me read that to you straight through. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. Uh, just a point of clarification right there. The servant just said, like, my master's wife is very old and she just had a son. So anyone sitting at the table, they'd be like, oh, okay, so this son is isn't like an old guy that you want to marry <laughs> our young daughter off to instead like he's probably about the same age because they know who abraham is and who sarah is and they're like their son he's got to be like what 80 <laughs> no 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 he's only like 37 ish or something like that okay uh because god blessed him in the old age so just pointing that out uh, okay, my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps a woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from the clan from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and, and the bracelets on her arms. 
Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who led me by the right ways to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. The first half of chapter 24 is like the literal physical world telling of this story. Here's how it went down between Abraham and uh, uh, his servant. But the second half of the same exact story retold is someone sharing like their spiritual experience of like, this is what God did. This is when it, how it went down from like a spiritual perspective. It's interesting how the Bible does that, right? In one chapter, two perspectives, same exact story, uh, one with nervousness from a physical perspective, one with uh, um, confidence and security from a supernatural perspective. In fact, he's so secure that at the end there, he says, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, uh, in the way that we read that, we probably don't like hear a lot of uh, of the the uh tone or what that is supposed to mean when he says that so i want to turn again once to winham and winham uh quotes uh, someone else named sternberg he says this the servant could have put it more simply now if you agree tell me but as sternberg observes the phrasing is so loaded and slanted as to deter non-compliance on the one hand, the allusion to the recent divine guidance by the true way insinuates the meaning, if you will do as God has done, or even the more threatening rhetorical question, will you go against God? And last of all, the servant's closing comments is a calculated to brand refusal as an offense against morality. If they do refuse, I will turn to the right or the left. I may look elsewhere. I will take my suit elsewhere to to servants to relatives more mindful of God and humanity, kind kinship and wealth. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I didn't catch any of that in what I just read. But uh, in the way that it's phrased, if we were to go a little deeper into scholarly studies, that's the way that it would come across, and it makes sense at the end of the statement, right? Here's a servant like, look at the way that God set this out. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. Oh, man, you know, think that this is coincidence. God is good. Look at what he just did. Isn't that crazy? And then look them in the eye and be like, now, which one of you is going to go against God, huh? <laughs> which one of you is going to turn against him and not, not finish this story the way that he has set things out? That's uh, maybe a bit more of the tone that you could kind of feel if you were to look a little deeper. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Okay, so they respond well, at least for a moment here. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. So he brings out more wealth now. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. 
When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. Now, I do want to pause here. Most Bibles probably aren't going to point this out, but she's like, well, uh, so, yeah, okay. So the mother, we're wondering, like, how on board she is with this. Partially because Laban and Bethuel said, go ahead, this thing is of the Lord, so take her. But now the mother's uh, speaking, and she says, let her remain with us for a while, at least 10 days. So, like, suddenly the mother seems to be, like, pausing, um, what others have already tried to to excel actually it's her brother and her mother okay so there there's maybe these people like grouping up together like i don't know about this i don't know if i'm really on board with this and uh this is a part that i said a lot of bibles may not point this out but that part that says at least 10 days could actually be a lot longer believe it or not um because another way to read it well, I'll read from Winham again, a year or so, literally days or 10. All that being said, you know, it's hard to tell like how, how long it might have fully been. Uh, some older manuscripts think that it was like a long delay. Um, so therefore, we could think that is much longer. Um, but it is hard to imagine Abraham's servant uh, staying that long, right? And so some have come to kind of like a a quicker conclusion um, rather than a year or so. But it does cause us to wonder, you know, if this mom is suggesting let her stay for like a year, well, she's really possibly not on board with it. Uh, 56, but he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. So again, more evidence that uh, mom might have not been on board right there. It said, so they sent away Rebecca, their sister. Uh, it doesn't say their daughter, anything like that. We already had Laban and Bethuel were on board with it, uh, but uh, the mother seemed to delay it. And now it seems to be siblings blessing her on her way out. She's also taking with her her nurse, which would have more or less been kind of Nana, someone who's taken care of her since she was young. So... She's taking Nana with her, uh, who will continue to take care of her. And on top of that, um, she gets this blessing. Now, there's a lot of things right here that really seem to say, like, this is the new Sarah, right? Uh, first off, Sarah has passed away recently. Um, Isaac is the continuation of Abraham's line. Uh, but Isaac needs a new wife, needs a, a new Sarah with him. Um, and this girl is coming from the land where Abraham and Sarah used to live. Uh, and now she's being um, given a, a promise of sorts that has already been, sorry, she's given a blessing of sorts that has already been blessed over Abraham. Um, in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, God told Abraham, uh, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
And as Rebecca's walking away, they say, may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So she's now entering into that promise, becoming a, a new Sarah. Uh, and Rebecca's name, actually, there's a lot of wordplay here. So Winham says, Rebecca's name sounds even more like a play on the root to bless than does Abraham's. And this connection is here made explicit. The blessing itself, may you become thousands of ten thousands, contains another play on her name. According to Gunkel and Struss, for ten thousand is Rababa. <laughs> Sorry, Rababa. <laughs> Again, quite similar to Rebecca's own name. Rababa, Rebecca, ten thousand. So there's a lot of plays here on her kind of entering into the promise, becoming the new Sarah, and marrying the new Abraham, the continuation of the line. Now she's going to go back home. Uh, sorry, she's going to enter into the land that has been promised to Abraham's descendants. And just altogether, she becomes a new Sarah, which uh, I think we'll even see a little bit more as we close out here in verse 61. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Laha Roy, which uh, you'll recall that was where um, you'll recall that that was where Hagar once was, Bir Laha Roy, where God showed up and kind of saved her. Uh, Bir Laha Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. So now. Um, the servant is going to meet. <laughs> Forget it. There's too many characters. The servant is going to meet um, Isaac, Abraham's son, at Bir Laharoi, the well of the living one who sees me. Uh, which I, I don't know if there's supposed to be a lot of like uh, wordplay or symbolism right there, but is it is interesting. We just saw this whole story where God has seen and taken care, and now that. Bir Laha Roy, where God has seen before, is kind of returned to the story. Uh, but Isaac's there dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. Uh, note that really quick. Abraham, you know, was was his master. I mean, by definition, you would think he'd be a servant to, to Isaac as well. But Abraham doesn't seem to be around anymore. They're not really returning to the land where Abraham was, but where Isaac is. And we, though we're going to see Abraham pass away in the next chapter... There is this question Winham would put of, is Abraham already passed away? Part of the reason was because like this whole start of this chapter started very much so with a kind of like last will and testament kind of thing. I want you on my deathbed to go take care of uh, my son, find him a wife, things like that. So we might be able to read it in that way where he has passed away chronologically based on ages that are put in the Bible. This doesn't make sense, but Winham would keep suggesting it. Like now he's calling, um, calling Isaac, his master, a servant's calling Isaac, his master. So there's, there seems to be like this trade-off here. Like perhaps Abraham gave his last will, please go get my, 
my son a wife and then passed away. And while he was gone, Abraham passes away. And when he returns, the new story has, has begun. Uh, if you were to, instead of read Abraham's ages chronologically, but read them in some very scholarly ways that are confusing to us that have to do with Mesopotamian fractions and meaning behind things and to the power of algebra and all this stuff, which I'm not good at, um, you could see it in that light, uh, let alone the chrono the chronology of the Bible is sometimes a little off anyways, or it sometimes tells a story before it explains the order in which the story happened. So you could take it that, that he has passed away. Either way, the new Abraham and Sarah, the new Isaac and Rebecca have started off. So it would make sense for it to take that, uh, narrative direction. And the servant told Isaac all the things. Oh, sorry. The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, uh, which makes you wonder probably from their traditions, like she's going to wear this veil until they get married, uh, which has yet to happen. So she may be wearing this veil for a long time. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Death. So maybe they did get married very quickly. Maybe there was some time before this, but either way, um, Rebekah enters into the tent of Sarah, who's passed away some time ago, and now she is, by all means, this new Sarah character. So... You know, there's even more that we could have got into with all this, but we've been talking for a long time now. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up, and we'll get into Genesis 25 next time. In the meantime, uh, leave a quick review. Just hit a star button. And again, that helps us know uh, who's listening, and uh, we will continue with the 1208 podcast next week. If all things go according to plan. And you have a good rest of your week.